Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firms, corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. I don't know what triggered it, truthfully. I don't know if I, it was because of the switchover from FISRA uh, to, to for FISCO to FISRA. I'm not sure. Uh, that was never actually disclosed with me. Yeah, I, I wish I had an answer. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. And welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. Uh, This episode is uh, co-branded CJB Navigator and CE Drive, so we're going to do some group insurance content in here. However, I'm going to say that this episode probably, um, and I know that we've had some really great guests on, but for those who have any sort of licensing, whether it's securities or insurance, or maybe even uh, just if you're an advice-only planner, um, this is a, a real uh, deep dive into an audit from a regulator and Chris goes into tons of detail here. You can hear he's meticulous and careful. He knows the questions he was asked. He knows how he answered them. Um, I just, I, I can't imagine uh, a sort of more valuable conversation about our regulatory requirements. And no knock against previous guests who've talked about regulatory requirements, but this is really from the coal face. So this episode will be good for insurance credits in all jurisdictions. That'll be good for one life and one ANS credit in Alberta. Could be good for a practice management credit from FP Canada, not a financial planning credit. I thought about putting it in for a professional responsibility credit, but I don't think it's going to fly. We don't talk about any specific FP Canada requirements in here. We're going to submit it for an IROC compliance credit. If it doesn't get an IROC compliance credit, it'll get a professional development credit. I may have to re-record this. We'll see what happens. Um, and it'll be a business conduct credit on the MFDA side. I'm fairly certain it'll get uh, approved for that. All right. Um, so first off, the object. Uh, the object is a little luggage tag. This is my old uh, regiment uh, cap badge, and I'm super happy with these luggage tags. I get them done up for a group of people I take to Europe um, every three years. This It'll be every four years now because of COVID, but whatever. Um, we're headed back in the fall for three weeks. We go to a bunch of uh, World War II, a little bit of World War I stuff. We're going to Waterloo this time, actually, unusually, which has nothing to do with World War Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, I guess it's pretty fundamental to World War I, but in a sort of a 
tangential way. Anyways, um, there you go. So the luggage tag is the object. Again, a luggage tag. All right. Uh, before we get into the interview, I've got a couple of things here. Um, first off, uh, Dave, my co-host, um, he has a, a certain opinion about a few insurers, and he's not share, not shy, sorry, to share that opinion. So bear with us. I thought about editing this out, but honestly, it comes up so many times in in one sort of narrow window. So I've I've chosen to leave it in. And if you have a beef with it, you could reach out to Dave on LinkedIn or whatever. I'm sure he's more than happy to talk about it. Um, I personally have no issue with Sun Life. I own Sun Life insurance policies myself. I had lunch with some good friends of mine who are at Sun Life uh, last week. I've been to head office several times. Um, I've had, like I said, insurance with them. Our old group broker, actually, before we sold Business Career College, uh, she was a Sun Life advisor. So um, I am not knocking Sun Life at all here. Uh, but you know, Dave has reasons for his uh, beefs. And, and I'm going to say that as far as his business goes, I have talked to Dave about this, and I understand why he has his reasons. Okay? I think that's a fair way to put that. Um, so please, uh, Sun Life folks, um, don't, uh, don't come at me here. Um, and honestly, if you're going to talk to Dave about this, he's going to talk about the group insurance side. So you, you really want to think about the group insurance side. And Chris brings up some good points here around this. So let's let's uh, give everybody um, some space when we get to that part of the conversation. Okay. The other uh, thing I just want to mention briefly before we get into the interview is uh, Chris will use the term NDA here. Um, I suspect most people will know this, but it's a non-disclosure agreement, and it comes up right near the tail end of the episode. All right. I would encourage, really, maybe even give this episode a couple listens. I'd be surprised if any licensed listener to this call doesn't come away with at least one thing that they say, hey, you know what, maybe I could be doing that a little bit better in my sort of regulatory requirements or my record keeping or my policies and procedures. All right, with that, let's roll into the interview. I'm back today with uh, Dave Patriarch. We're recording an episode for the CGIB Navigator. Always great to see you here, Dave. And uh, Chris Gorey, who uh, Dave knows, whom, sorry, Dave knows well, and I've had some uh, interactions with here and there. Had the pleasure to meet in person in Calgary a couple of years ago. Thanks, Chris. So, Chris, can you start off by telling us a bit about yourself, how long you've been in the business for, what sort of business you run? Sounds great. Yeah, absolutely, Jason. Good morning. Uh, so I got into insurance back in 95. I actually was working for the largest property and casualty software provider, a company called Apply Systems. I worked for them for two years and then moved over to my ex-wife's um, property and casualty brokerage in 97. I got my life license in 01, started selling benefits in 06, and just started working with nothing but tech companies in 2008. Business is 100% group, uh, no individual products. And I'm just going to chime in for a second here, Dave, sir. And you work in an incubator primarily, don't you, Chris? This is, I have this right? No, I actually, cons- uh, I'm an advisor at a couple of tech incubators in Toronto. So there's um, one called the DMZ, which used to be the Digital Media Zone, which used to be Ryerson University, which is now Toronto Metropolitan. I've been an advisor there since 2014. And I've also taught on insurance to other incubators like Ryerson Startup School, uh, 111, and a few other spaces. Thanks, Chris. All right, it's a pretty it's a pretty neat space, um, and so I, I just we're getting into the whole issue of licensing and everything in this call today or this podcast, um, and 
I just thought I'd kind of throw this one out here right away because it seems to come up lately. Um, I imagine you're both corporate and individual licensed, um, but I'm seeing more and more advisors just kind of forgetting about the uh, corporate licensing. And so you are, and you've kind of gone through that process, right? I'll go one step further. So um, I'm licensed in Ontario, BC. I accidentally let my Quebec license slip and I'm, I'm uh, working on regaining that. We'll talk about that in a second and working on any, every other province. But uh, I went through a rebrand in 2018 uh, and I uh, filed my DBA with the government. I did that you know, in Jan- July of 2018. Um, I didn't want to do the full change the corporate name because that triggered a fiscal year end, a new fiscal year end. And I just didn't have the time or bandwidth to go through at that particular time. So yeah, I've not only am I doing my, my registration for my license, but I'm also doing it corporately. And then sometimes I also have to do a third thing, file the DBA. So and what's a DBA for the audience? Doing business as. There you go. So also operating as is the other phrase or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So it's a, it's a big, it's a, multi-step process in uh, several provinces. Chime in with a tax comment here, Chris, because you said rightly that if you change something within your corporate structure, that triggers a year-end. That's something I see a lot of people overlook, a change of control or change of name or all, all kinds of stuff that can trigger a year or a year end. So thanks. Yeah. I just didn't have the bandwidth for it. So it's something I'll do at some yeah. point, Jason, but uh, just haven't had the time um, or the desire to go through it. So and of course, yeah. you know, if you work with your accountant, you can plan it so that it coincides with a normal year end and you save yourself one tax return that way. But but there's a whatever, whole right? another set of now you have to go and get recontracted with every insurance company when you change your name on the corporate side. So you're just opening up that, okay, 20 new contracts or or whatever thing as well. So yeah, it's um it, it becomes a bigger thing. And also your all your insurance, you know your your cyber, your ENO, your your CGL, your bond. If you can, if you have that, everything, your banking information. So I just again going back to the bandwidth, didn't have the time or desire then, and really don't now. So what's the benefit it. too, right? So yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. Sorry, Dave. I'll hand it over to you here. <laughs> Oh, okay. oh, I think, yeah, um, I sorry, think I you think were going to, maybe there's yeah. a little bit of one question here. So, um, cause you just talked about some of the challenges and I think you might talk about Quebec here. So what are some of the unique challenges you've had by province with, uh, maintaining all this various licensing? Because you're trying to also get licensed in every province and maybe territory too, right? That's your so goal. Give, yeah. So give you some context. I got my license, uh, back in 01 as mentioned, um, got my, my BC license in about 2008 and my Quebec license in around 2010. Uh, with the Quebec license, there's 30 uh, CE credits. 10 of them are specific to Quebec. And you know, with the other 20, you can transfer them over from other jurisdictions, but those 20 you can't, or those 10 you can't, pardon me. So I was really good about maintaining that. And then right around the time I was going through the rebrand, I messed up and I only got four of my 10 Quebec-centric uh, CEs done. So now I'm having to take an ethics course and then um, reapply for that. It's going to be fairly straightforward, but for, to get that license initially, I had to do that at Rebo's office. I had to write the exam in person, Rebo being the registered insurance brokers of Ontario uh, at their office on Bay Street in downtown Toronto. The three study guides, only one was in English. Um, the other two were only available in French. So I just had to base my answers on the exam off my knowledge. So, And, and so my question was going to be, do those 10 CE credits 
are they in French only or can, they can be in either or it doesn't matter. It's easy to find them in both or do you know? You do them through the, through the Quebec uh, government site and they are in English, uh, but they are video. They are very interactive. So you have to sit through the entire video and actually do a question for each specific one or do an exam, not a question, pardon me. So um, you can't just sit in the back of a classroom and collect your 10 Quebec centric CEs. Gotcha. So in the past, you used to have to have an office in the province of, was it Quebec and maybe BC at one point? Is that still a requirement? Like, and most people would say, okay, you just hire a law firm to be your place you can serve papers, place you can push mail or whatever. But I, I had heard that had been not allowed and then maybe eased up. Um, was that a problem or not a problem? So- I, I, I want to share this with you, Dave. You, you and I talk a lot. I haven't shared this nightmare that's gone on. Uh, I do have a lawyer in each separate province, um, okay. every province. So I have taken my my cross Canada registrations and broken them down east of Ontario and west of Ontario. And everything west of Ontario, there are some headaches, and we'll talk about that. But east of Ontario, I went to the company that handles my Quebec registration. I said, do you have any law firms that you work with who can handle the Maritimes? And they said, go to this website and they do extra provincial incorporations. Well, I paid them $7,600 and they ghosted me and they did not handle any single registration. So I now am actually uh, with BMO and MasterCard fighting to get my $7,600 back. And I've gone to a law firm that is licensed in all the provinces and they're handling my incorporations in each one so it's wow. uh it's been a nightmare the, the joys of putting stuff on credit card is if it's unfulfilled most of the time you'll get the money back if you appeal it within 90 days if you don't appeal it within 90 days then yeah. they will not actually help you with it oh wow okay good to know the lessons you learn here on yeah. cgib navigator <laughs> that will carry on through the rest of your life i tell you stories about home renovations and people disappearing going out of business and chasing that money back again so yeah good one um, okay, so I guess moving along, um, how much CE, continuing education, do you do in a year? And and kind of generally, how do you do it? Uh, obviously, Business Career College is the one and only source for real CE other than maybe CGIB. But um, do you kind of get it all done at the beginning of the year and put it behind you and forget about it? Do you do it all at the end of the year? Or do you mainly online, in person? Just kind of in general, share what your kind of CE experience looks like over the two years Um we need it in Ontario, for example. It's a blend of in-person and online. And I started as soon as, as soon as I can. So, you know, we're recording this in the middle of February. My license renews in one week, in eight days. And I'll start as soon as that's done, I'll start actually collecting my hours for the, uh, the two years after the fact. Uh, I store everything in, in OneDrive. I use OneDrive for my, for my cloud storage and I break it down to two-year increments and I save everything by number of hours and by the date I obtained it. Um, so if ever I'm audited, which we will talk about shortly, it's readily available. So, and at, at some point, just to circle back on that, uh, the last question about the extra provincial, I, I'd love to share some, some more, uh, stories about what to do, what not to do. Okay. I'm I'm sure now. To hear this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Go for it. Okay. Cause I made notes before we actually hopped on here today. So the, the challenges. So, um, Jason, you and I spoke about this prior to the call today, um, I'll just mention a few of the provinces. Newfoundland, we spoke about this one. They actually require uh, wet copies of your extra-provincial incorporations. So I used an online notary service to actually notarize all my documents for the Maritimes. Um, Newfoundland will not accept digitally signed copies 
by Notary Republic, or Notary Pro, pardon me, or other uh, companies. So I had to go get that in person and actually uh, courier that off to them. So they're adamant about a wet signature. Um, as of right now, I, I mentioned I'm working on the extra provincial licensing. So right now I have Ontario, BC, Alberta, Manitoba, Northwest Territories, and New Brunswick. And with the exception of Ontario and BC, I've done them all in the last three months, four months. Um, with Saskatchewan, they're asking for a list of 50 policies that I've sold. And I just do nothing but group. So as mentioned, so I came back and I said, okay, here's a list of 50 group policies uh, with a carrier with the effective date and the policy number. They said, no, we want more. We want head office location, international head office location, uh, how long they've been clients, how long they've been with the current carrier. So it's now back with, with Saskatchewan as with this very detailed spreadsheet listing international head offices, number of plan members, everything. Um, that has been a challenge. Um, I'm looking at my other notes here. Um, what, what's interesting with the, 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 that's on the licensing standpoint from the provincial incorporations. I mentioned initially that I have a DBA filed. In some provinces, the DBA does not renew at the same time as the extra provincial. So oh. the DBA registration is good for, for three years, whereas the corporate name is good for five years. So you really have to stay on top of that. Um, and spreadsheets all over. <laughs> yes. And you, know, you have to have your status of registration. And then the other thing is they need uh, criminal checks. And there are online services where you can get a criminal check done by, you know, I think there's one where it's done out of a police force in Nova Scotia. There are a couple of provinces that require that your criminal check is done by the jurisdiction in which you live. So yeah. I had this one done online by a force out of Nova Scotia, and they said, no, you have to have it done by the Toronto police because that's where I live. Yeah. So, Which isn't really hard. Like they're set up yeah. to do it pretty quick and easy if you don't have to do fingerprints, but yeah. Yeah. So it's just one interesting thing on top of another. That's but it's one, that's yeah, enough. just one more yeah. thing. Yeah. Now, yeah. now, just to okay. throw in a little thing, you don't have to be licensed in general as an advisor. You don't have to be licensed in every province, only if you want to sell in that province. So the general rule, without getting into a debate about it, is you know, if, like I, for example, and I'm Ontario licensed only. I gave up my Alberta license uh, years ago, and um, I have employees in a lot of provinces, but the head office the administration or whatever is all handled in ontario so that's kind of the limit of it but if i had a client that moved to bc and they close their ontario office i'd have to get licensed in bc to hold on to that client with the exception of sun life so sun life says <laughs> that you can't actually do business in a province that you're not licensed in, as long as the client is aware of that and they have a document called confirmation of negotiation location and the client will, will allow you, if the client signs off, you can't actually get paid commission on a province that you're not licensed in. So, but we don't deal with Sun Life generally, right? So it's not really a problem? I do. Oh, sorry. Threw that <laughs> in. Oh, Thought bubble, Dave. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. Dave, I was literally in Sun Life head office in Kitchener Waterloo two Thursdays ago. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, was, were, they, yeah. were they nice to you? <laughs> they were very nice to me, yes. So Did they make you fill out forms? <laughs> I used um, to always I, say that Sun, Sun Life is run by the lawyers. And uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. So this just reinforces that. 
Sun Life is the uh, the largest market that I that I have. Um, the reason being, a lot of tech companies use the name of the insurance company as part of the attraction and retention for the new clients, for the new employees, pardon me. And they find, and it's no disrespect to the smaller carriers, but the names Candlelight and Sun Life carry more clout than, I hate to say it, an Empire Life, who's an excellent carrier. So all things created equal, a lot of these companies say, oh, Sun Life, let's go with them just because it's going to help. Yeah, fair enough. Um, just an- another kind of a quick note. Um, you've said you kind of start with your CE right away. And a, a thing that I've had coming up a little bit more lately, mainly in Ontario, I'm not sure if this is everywhere else, but um, uh, I think Jason, you were saying BC is maybe kind of going this way as well, is you don't leave your CE till the end, the end of your two years or whatever. Um, I've had a bunch of advisors that have tried to do their renewals early because in Ontario, we had a bit of a backlog. So they were asking us to do them as soon as possible. So they were doing them a month or two in advance, which is great practice. Um, and they were saying, okay, well, my last CE credit is going to be next week. So they jot down the date and, and everything, and they'd have it rejected immediately because you did not have that CE credit yet. You're going to earn it in a few days. And, you know, the, the paperwork's all going to take a while to get processed. So, you know, the person's probably going to do it, but they just basically reject it. So now you have to go and get your CE credits, delay your renewal, and then kind of go through the process then. So I, I say that kind of as a bit of a warning, because I know a few people have been fairly shocked by it and kind of worried that they might have a gap in the renewal of their license, which theoretically can cause a gap in your E&O, which can cause um, the insurance companies to stop paying you and and on and on and on. I think so. Alberta has been like that forever. Um, Saskatchewan has pushed a little further down that road. BC will be there soon. Um, and just while we're on this topic of extra provincial yeah. CE credits, I would bet, Chris, the only province that you have CE requirements for other than Ontario is Quebec. This is fair. Correct. Yes, yes, everything else is transferable. Yeah, it's um, well, there is a separate headache. You should be grateful here that you not that, uh, not that there's anything wrong with that otherwise, but you should be grateful not to live in Atlantic Canada. Because if you live in Atlantic Canada, which doesn't have CE requirements, then you would have to meet the CE requirements for every jurisdiction in which you're not resident. Ooh, that'd be a lot of hours. Would be, it's a pain. Depending, yeah. yeah. And guess yeah. what I'm working on, Jason? I've got my New Brunswick now. and I'm- That's fine. Because you're, yeah, so the New Brunswick license doesn't require any reciprocity. You're okay there. Okay. So, it's the other yes. way that's a problem. Gotcha. I'm, I'm, not, gotcha. I'm not adding anything to your plate, but if you were to move to New Brunswick, that's where you would then okay. be resident New Brunswick. And you'd find then you have to meet your Quebec, Ontario, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and oh and if you move to Defiance, separately. everything goes out the window. So <laughs> yes, Ohio. Yeah. And I, I've I've held off on doing Nunavut. Um, Nunavut is apparently a, a three month wait to get done. I, I don't know how much business would be there, but I've I've got Northwest Territories done. Yukon's a work in progress. You know, it's interesting when I did those was that. Um, you know, you have to have a company sponsor your license. And so I have uh, Candle Life sponsoring my license down east. I have Sun Life sponsoring my license out west. And with all the other provide, all the, the, the insurance regulators, you submit the application and then the carrier, Sun Life or Candle Life, signs off. In the case of Yukon and Northwest Territories, I had to send the form to, Can- to Sun Life, have them sign it, send it back to me. And I, in turn, had to send it off to the provincial regulator for them to actually approve the license. So it's a little different with the, with the two territories that I'm getting licensed in. Fair enough. Okay, so now can you go through your most recent <laughs> Ontario 
renewal as compared to past renewals? So the the Ontario renewal, as mentioned, my license renews on the on, in eight days on the twenty first, and uh, it's been you know very simple. Uh, provide copies of my CE, provide copies of my E and O. Very different from two years ago. Yeah, the the renewal that's going that uh, I'm going through right now is very different than the experience I had two years ago. Uh, two years ago, I went through an audit which took almost four months to complete um, and was extremely, extremely uh, detailed. Uh, lots of uh, timelines I had to abide by. Lots of information had to be provided. And um, the ironic thing, Dave, I, I've never shared this with you, is that um, during the last audit was when Fisco and FISRA were going through the rebrand or through the change. And Dave, you might recall that you looked for CGIB members to actually volunteer and be on their site, be on their committee to actually provide feedback into the new FISRA site. Yeah. Well, the person who was actually doing my audit was also on that committee. Oh, wow. Kind of so interesting. Saw, yeah. So I saw them on the audit. Then I also saw them on the feedback on the FISRA site which yeah. was didn't help me. I still had to go through the audit either way. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so it started out as a normal renewal. You were being asked for CE credits and you go through the paperwork like normal. What changed? Where did it go get different or something? Oh gosh. It, it, they asked for everything. Um, you know, in preparation, this is, been two years since and in preparation of our, of our call today, I actually wrote down all my notes about everything they asked for uh, to make sure I didn't leave anything out. Um, they okay, wait, asked. so pause. So wait, so you did your renewal, you did the paperwork for the renewal like you normally would, you okay. included the CE credits that you had and you mm -hmm. sent in and that's all that was required, typical renewal. That's how it started, right? Correct. And then they came back and go. <laughs> and they kept coming back time after time saying, we need this within two days, give us this. And then I wouldn't hear anything for like two weeks and they come back with another ask, get it to us in two days, wouldn't hear anything for a week or three weeks and then come back time after time. And they came back with everything, asking for everything. So I'm just gonna go through my, my notes I wrote down here. Um, they asked for all the CEs, all the certificates, the dates and locations for everything. They asked for a copy of my privacy, uh, they asked for my copy of uh, my disclosure. Um, they asked for a copy of my anti-laundering documents. And being a group, typically you don't really think about anti-laundering anti and money laundering, but I had to have them. So I provided that to them. They asked me for copies of all my licenses, my interior license going back years. They asked me for copies of my ENO going back years. And I am a pack rat. So I, I hang on to everything. I mean, I have commission statements going back to 2002 that I still have. Um, they asked me about my CRM. They asked me about security for my CRM. They asked me about recommendations of um, recommendations that I made to clients in email. So I had to actually provide screenshots and printed copies of things that I had attached into my CRM, which is Salesforce. i had attached from Gmail. Uh, and they did that two times. So they asked for three, three or four each time. We was it five? We want proof of recommendations that you made to clients. Could have been through a claim, uh, through a, a claim experience report, talking about different things. They want to see how I'm engaging with people. They did that twice. Um, this went back and forth until June before they finally, and they kept telling me that this is contingent on my license renewal that I had to provide this information. So, and I think that goes to the suitability 
of a per, the, the the rationale that they use is they're going to show that you are a suitable agent and they can basically go to any extent it seems ask anything for suitability there's no list there's no this is suitable or not suitable like it's not just assume because you have a, a license you've had your background checks done you've proven your education that's not enough they can go much much further um, do you know how many documents you ended up sharing? Like just rough, or like is this one, two, three, a hundred? Um, and oh, I was probably given six different lists of things. No, more than that. Oh gosh, I I wouldn't even. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, all the CEs going back multiple years. So they asked multiple years of CE PDFs, which I have, yeah. thank God. Um, the privacy disclosure, the anti, the money laundering. We're talking um, dozens and dozens oh, and dozens and dozens of documents. Yeah. Oh yeah, easily, easily, um, with copies of licenses, copies of ENO, and yeah, dozens. And and the, they, the other thing, can I say the other oh, interesting thing? Sorry, Jason. The other interesting thing is that they use not SharePoint, SharePoint, but a similar service, and they have limitations on the size of the documents and the number of documents you can upload at a time. So it wasn't just, you know, attach it to an email, send it back. You had to actually work through their system. And that took a little bit of massaging as well to get them all the data they needed. So for, did they give like a legislative reference or like was this under the unfair deceptive acts and practices? Did they just say because we're the regulator? Nothing was cited. It was just that I had to provide this and my renewal with my renewal approval was contingent on actually providing all this data, but they didn't specify it. And everything they asked for was in writing? Yes. Do you have a sense? And just because I've never, I've never run into this depth of audit before. And this is where I'm, you know, do you have the sense of was this more of a because as you mentioned, FISRA is a relatively new entity. Might some of this have been like Okay, we've got a guy here who, you know, maybe the initial question led them to say, well organized. Like, do you think that maybe they were using you as a little bit of a like a guinea pig kind of thing, Chris? I'd like to think so. I'm not sure why I was red flag for this, Jason. I'm really not. Um and, I had and, everything in my CRM, thank God. Sorry, Dave. Yeah. And I was I was just gonna say, like, I mean, the, I think the first when I hear these stories externally, and I've known Chris for forever. Um, I go, okay, what did he do wrong? Like, I mean, <laughs> he's obviously screwed around, cut corners. He's like, you know, fake and CE credits and nothing could be further from the truth. Like, I mean, Chris is a fastidious, like record keeper and everything else. And and when we started talking about this whole story, I'm like going, I don't think most advisors could pull this information together. And I mean, I've got most of my CES PDFs, but I've still got, if I go back a few years, I've still got some paper ones that were mailed to me and stuff. So, you know, it, no big deal to uh, scale, uh, scan them, but but I do have up-to-date FinTrack policies and I do have up-to-date poli uh, privacy policies and disclosure notices, but I don't know if most advisors do, especially those living mainly in the group business without, you know, an MGA that's forcing them into a compliance regime. Like I, I really kind of worry about that. And, um, you know, like, so, you know, kind of drawing on Jason's question, what was the trigger that caused this or was it just random or, or whatever? And maybe if people are listening to this and other people have had a similar experience, you know, share with us even offline saying, this is not a one-off. This is now the new norm or the new one in a hundred or one in 10, you know, who knows? We'll find out, I guess, over time a little bit. 
Yeah, I don't know what triggered it. Truthfully, I don't know if I it was because of the switchover from Fisra uh, to to for Fisco to Fisra. I'm not sure. Uh, that was never actually disclosed with me. Um, yeah, I, I wish I had an answer. Um, yeah. Don't tell you, Dave. Sorry. I, I, no, I've had and I've had a few conversations with different people around kind of the new regulatory regime in Ontario with Fisra, and that whole um, I just lost the term. Um, proving that you are worthy as an advisor, those kind of new documents in that new direction is seeming to be an open, open-ended open audit. Like, I mean, there's no, we're not pointing to this, you have to have this many CE credits, because even that isn't very well defined in uh, regulation, like content and everything. Um, so they're kind of doing it on a, a wider basis going, are you, are you a responsible, trustworthy agent doing all the right things in Ontario? Yeah, the you know what we, guideline they, that's used in Ontario right now for CE credits is actually based on a 1997 policy document from the Ontario Insurance Council, which is now two regulators ago. Which is actually revised from the 1992 one. It's so it's it's been around forever, and there's no basis for it other than a guideline document. So, you know, we, we as a CGIB, for example, and you, Jason, as well, I'm sure, we hold the bar like fairly high. You know, you we're not doing sales talks, and yet there's tons of sales talks happening that are qualifying for CE, totally contrary to that guideline document. And it's some of the biggest producers of CE that, that seem to bend the rules. So uh, yeah, it's it's interesting how we're living on old documents and old old regulators, quite frankly. Yeah. You know, it's funny, we're talking about CE, but the one thing that, that was really discussed a lot was the correspondence with clients. Know so your I, client kind of stuff? Proof that you're actually giving recommendations to clients. And that you're actually getting um, emails of direction from clients and you're saving that. So, yeah, I was able to provide the CE. I was able to provide a lot of it, but they wanted a lot. That's where they came back twice was asked for proof of correspondence to and from clients. So, you know, what? that's a great one. I've always made that part of my process when I work with a client and they say, okay, let's increase the health spending account or let's amend the policy. I go, no problem. I'm going to write up a request to amend. You're going to sign it and date it. We're going to send it to the insurance company just so that we're on the same page. There's no misunderstanding because a lot of the stuff we do through a bunch of emails is not one. It's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Sometimes it's verbal, um, but that final piece of paper is always in the file. And I know a lot of insurance companies go, you don't need to do that. Just send us an email saying, do this. I'm like, no, no, I want the client to realize, you know, you're signing off on something. We're making a contractual change. So great, a good practice and, and um, you know, a good reminder that, you know, we got to be documenting stuff. And again, you're, you're a little bit advanced in using a CRM the way that you do it with as much information as you save. And I would say, I guess I probably am too. It's much older. CRM, but we can track all the stuff and track all the phone calls and everything else. And I don't think, again, the average advisor is kind of going to that ends of things unless they have a big corporate structure kind of around them. So a warning maybe to to others, if you haven't cleaned up your act, make sure you're clean. I want to just jump in here, Chris, with um, because I think Dave has the sort of curse of the the expert here and like, you know, what's needed. Right. And, and so Chris, um, can you just talk through a little bit of like your process? You do some KYC, you know, you already talked about a little bit of delivering advice to clients. What what happens in there that, you know, you've kind of built and that you shared in this case? Uh, in terms of know your clients, Jason? Um, yeah. Well, one of the great, 
one of the things I, I let me circle back on something that Dave said. Uh, Dave mentioned was you know getting the documentation from your clients. I always ask for fresh emails. For, I don't get them to sign a, a full you know document requesting changes be made, but I ask them to complete a fresh email, not just respond to something and specify date, policy number, and what changes are to be made. And I attach everything into the client into the client file. Uh, but in terms of know your client, Jason, one of the things I do is um, I actually very fortunate. I work primarily in the one industry, so I've created my own benchmarking. So I'm able to provide benchmarking content to my clients and say, okay, this is the stage of a tech company startup that you're at. This is where you should be looking at for coverage. So we have dialogue going back and forth saying, this is what's like best, what I see best in practice or best in industry for what you want to do. And I get them to agree via emails to what coverage they want. Um, so I'm just, I'm fortunate because I work primarily in the one industry. Do you do yeah, that's Go ahead, good. Do you do a fact finding sheet at the beginning? Like how long you've been in business for how many employees are they true employees? You know, anyone off on disability or anything like that? No. No, we just verbally hop on a call and, yeah. and go through things and and I get a good idea about how many people on the plan, where they're looking to grow. Um it, it's oh, all done enough. verbally, nothing in writing. Yeah. Cool. It's so curious, know, Dave, because I know I think I, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but I think you have a uh, mixed feelings about benchmarking, Dave. Am I Oh, no, no, there's no mixed feelings. I hate benchmarking. I think it's a waste of time. And and uh, only because I think content um, without context is garbage. So just having data, just having stats, just having numbers, I think means nothing without knowing the bigger picture. So um, I'm not like right on Chris's stuff or anything. But like, I mean, if, if you have like my biggest example, you have 50% of an industry has 80% drugs and 50% is 100% coverage coinsurance so you kind of go well which is better well 100 is better well is it or are they all splitting the cost 50 50 with their employees in which case it's a it's less and benchmarking doesn't catch uh or generally does. okay chris go for it your yeah, benchmarking I've, I've, my does benchmarking that. does that so yeah. it actually puts in their employer contributions and it can also filter down by company size so i can say this is two to ten employees 11 to 25 26 to 50 51 to 100 100 on uh, one to 250 and above. So I can say, yeah, you're a company that's got two to 10 employees. This is the percentage of people who have this type of coverage. This is what the, the employer employee split is. I've got all that on my sheet. I created that. I hired somebody off Fiverr. So I can get a, it's, yeah, it's not the generic stuff, it, but it yeah. does provide more context. No, and, that, and that's great because I think you do need those other things. And even if all things are being equal, even if we said they're all employer only plans, well, my question to a, a prospective client would be, um, of the people at 80%, how many of them would, employers, how many employers would rather be at 100? And the answer is zero. How many people that are 100% coverage would rather be at 80? And that's usually like 75%. You know, like they're stuck because of collective bargaining agreements and union cases, or they're too worried about taking away plan coverage and, and things like that, especially in this market. So yeah, I, I, I think benchmarking data can be useful in good context and the chris's information is providing that appreciate that thank you so this is it right so this is where the benchmarking to me helped you to meet this kind of nebulous regulatory requirement yes absolutely jason perfect yeah. anybody from from Fizzra is listening i didn't mean nebulous <laughs> i it, but, but it's but it is gray like i mean you kind of there is no expectation and i will i will share a story about uh, going back in time, and I think it was the OIC, their last days before Fisco was incorporated or whatever. 
And um, there was a, a media release where I, I think, again, I think it was UIC said they were going to start auditing all CE providers. And so um, it was just a, a, a out in the industry, you know, magazines and stuff. And they were trying to kind of clamp down on, you know, making sure there was good, appropriate CE. So I, I went to Fisco that day that it hit the media and mm-hmm. said, hold on, guys, um, what, what are your criteria you're doing in the audit? And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm a CE provider through CGIB. So I'd like that audit list to make sure I'm compliant. Like, so what do you want to see on a certificate? You know, what do you want us to store for how long? And they came back and said, well, there is nothing. I go, what do you mean? You must have an audit list. And they said, no, we don't. I said, well, what questions are you going to ask a supplier? And they go, we're not going to ask a, a course provider any questions. I said, wait a minute, you just put this out in the media that you're going to start doing CE audits. And they said, well, we did it to try and kind of get everybody to be better, but we have no authority to actually do audits or to disallow credits or anything. And I'm like, okay, that's just wrong. Like you're misleading everybody. And now there's kind of a uh, an expectation that we're all going to be audited when that's totally outside of your realm and the regulation. And they said, yeah, but you know, hopefully it'll scare people straight a bit. And I'm like, what a terrible response. Okay, so not FISRA. That's not FISRA. It probably wasn't even fiscal. I think it was OIC, Ontario Insurance Council, before that. So just the, the strange evolutions of regulators, right? Gosh. Yeah. So where are we on the list here? <laughs> so I, I want to chime in here with a question back to Chris's experience. Was this actually called an audit? Like, did they use that language or is this kind of what we've taken to calling it? No, they called it an audit, Jason. They absolutely did. Okay, this is interesting because they I know they've done some secret shopper stuff in the past. And um yeah, and I, I I'm gonna do some digging in here. There's gonna be some follow-on notes with this episode for sure. The, the secret shopper one I'd like to hear about because yeah. I every now and then get those phone calls from people and I just go, There's no way this is real. Um, but I mean I had a call one day from a guy who didn't identify himself, called me and he just started asking questions. And he was asking about licensing requirements and and stuff. And I'm like, this is just weird. And um, so I answered his questions. And I said, okay, pause. Who are you? And it was actually somebody from not the regulator, but an, an association doing some fact finding to see if what I was saying was wrong. And, uh, and it was just the weirdest kind of thing. And 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 I kind of went, okay, this is crazy. And they said, well, we're hoping you have the right answer. And I'm like, you're supposed to be calling the regulator, not me on this issue. And they're like, well, the regulator can't answer it. So we thought you could. And I'm like, okay, I'm the guy in the basement running a little association <laughs> of like-minded benefits people. And I'm supposed to have the regulator's answers. That's kind of a weird thing. So there, there, weird stuff happens in our industry from time to time, <laughs> which is great for podcasts. <laughs> that's true (laughs) all this content yeah (laughs) with context yeah yeah i so um so now on the kyc side again um is there anything i don't know extra that you think that should be happening here chris like or is there a connection between what you should be doing and what the regulator asked for how uh would you change your process and what you do and how you save information? Maybe. Yeah. In terms of how I save information, no, because I save every email where there's a direction from the client into my CRM. I did uh, as a result of this think, Oh God, what if I lost all my data in my CRM? So then I actually implemented two backups uh, of my CRM in addition to two backups of my Mac. Um, just again, give me the peace of mind. 
uh, that it's happening. So I actually back one up to a removable hard drive right here. And I also back one up to the cloud of my Salesforce. Only um, two. We'll, just we'll two. talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Remember time machine. <laughs> yeah. No. So the time machine backs up my entire Mac. Yeah. But I also back up just the Salesforce data. So okay. I actually do two backups of both my, uh, two backups of my Salesforce and two backups of a Mac. Yeah. And this um, is so automated now that everybody should be able to do this with no yeah. problem. Like, I mean, I have a cloud-based backup system that just happens. And if there's ever a failure, they will occur to me in 12 hours or 24 hours, a hard drive with everything. Cause it's a huge clone yeah. basically. Yeah. I get uh, at my email, my backup for my Salesforce is done every night, like at eight o'clock, I get an email confirmation that's gone through, cost me $30 a year. Um, so I, I know it's there. But in terms of what's changed, Jason, honestly, I after our conversation today, I'm wondering maybe I should do a little bit more on the know your client side in, in terms of actually getting something in writing from the client as opposed to verbal. Um, that might be something I would change. But in terms of what came out of the audit, it was just really like the fear of what would happen if I lost all my data um, because I couldn't replicate it. Yeah. So now I'm going to ask a question and I don't, I don't know what answer I'm expecting here. Do you do reasons why? Like, is this a thing? And Dave, I'm curious about this too, from you know the group perspective in general. Like, like there is okay, and I'm, so if, the CLA, I'm talking about Fitzroy the CLHA. Yeah. Well, this is where again, like, it's a CLHA. I don't know requirement, right? The reasons why. That's all it is. It's CLHA. I, I can I. I apologize yeah, if anyone. I apologize if anyone from CLE is listening. Um, <laughs> I don't really put a lot of personally, a lot of, um, oh, how can I say this and be nice stock stock and what, <laughs> thank you. And what they tell us, um, if you remember when G19 came about, you know, we were fighting all the disclosure. And one of the first things I said, I thought was, okay, if they're actually going to be dictating what our commission are, what's going to happen with our commissions, I want to be more involved. So I reached out to Clea and they said, sorry, you can't become a member. This is just strictly in a, in a, something for insurance companies, I thought, oh, maybe there's a little bit of, you know, a little bit of flexibility there in light of G19. So the fact that there's an association that is not made up of insurance advisors actually telling us things, unless it's coming from FISRA or the other provincial regulatory bodies, I'm not putting stock in it. And we don't have, like, I mean, know your client is big in the investment world and maybe slightly less so. And I'm, this is just me from the outside because I'm not in that world, maybe less so on the life insurance side. But in the group insurance, it's kind of a weird thing because it's not a person. It's you're looking at a corporation and the needs are constantly changing and stuff. So it, I would say most advisors have a really informal process around it, not a scripted, you know, and I'm actually going through this right now because I'm updating my FinTrack stuff. And they're like, well, you should be getting, you know, the net worth, the income, the, the blah, blah. And I'm like, hold on a minute. Like there's a limit to how much needs to be shared and it's not really material. So, um, yeah, we, I don't think, although our licensing and everything else, you know, has a, a line of knowledge about our client, I don't think it's quite to the same extent as we'd see on the other side, or at least most advisors don't do it. I don't think. And something you touched on there was was very applicable to the whole audit. You know, you talked about FinTrack and and really going through the the get to know your clients. You know, their investments. Uh, they wanted to know when when I went through this with Fisra, a lot of the questions were geared towards individual. 
They were really auditing me from an individual standpoint. So I had to explain multiple times that this is not applicable in the benefit space. That probably happened three, maybe four times. I'd say, well, that's not a question we ask our clients, Um, you know, in terms of like money being held uh, and things like that. Cash surrender values and like, yeah. And they had their their predetermined list of questions. And I just kept saying, not applicable for us. So there's no opportunity for your whole client money. There is like all that, like you, everything goes right yeah. straight through. You're not, there's no, we have the same thing with AML. Banks. Yeah. With any money laundering yeah. of, we don't accept cash. We don't accept payments. We may hold a check and pass it to the insurer, but it's an in insurer's name, not ours. We don't like, unless you do um, fee for service or, you know, whatever, but, but for most commission paid advisors, it's a flow through. Like we're not, we're not getting the money. We're just, you know, the check goes straight to the insurance company. So, yeah. Um, so what would you, do? oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Dave, sorry. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, is there any, so I think we covered it already, but is there anything you would do better or different next time or, or anything at all, either in process or how you responded or other than, you know, maybe backing up more like you have or, or the know your client, nothing really. I, I think the, I actually reached out to you two weeks ago, about um, you know, the FinTrack and the anti-money laundering, um, I think I need to be a little, I need to stay on top of that more. Uh, thankfully, I had done something about six months prior uh, about that before the audit, but I think that's something I need to stay on top of a little bit more updating those documents. And we're actually, I'm working with a woman who does this for a living, has just automated the process and works with advisors to build out privacy disclosure um, and the FinTrack any money laundering policies and keep them up to date. They update every six months and, um, you know, the training requirement annually or tw- every two years or whatever. So helping advisors to do all that. So I'm just going through all that right now and hopefully we can kind of make that available to CGIB members so that it's a bit, um, a bit easier. It's not free by any stretch. There's a lot of work goes into it, but, um, but it's maybe a solution to help make it a little bit easier. I would just chime in that, you know, if you had a FinTrack audit, for example, because that's another entity that can audit you and does have very clear legislative authority to do so, yeah. um, they they will want to see a policy, obviously, but they also want to see examples of implementation of that policy in a FinTrack audit. So, yeah, this is, yeah. And, it, and that's hard on the group side. Like, I mean, it's hard to show... Well, have we registered a complaint or a a concern or whatever? Like they have the different levels. Well, no, because none of them apply. So it's it's hard to show that you're actually doing it because you're not taking money from individuals. You're not, you know, all this stuff. So that's difficult. Um, And I know one of the tests that came back from somebody in an audit was, do you have a corporate policy instilling your FinTrack in your corporation's you know, bylaws and stuff that you have to follow these rules. And the answer was, well, no. And they go, then it doesn't apply. Then it's like, you don't have a policy at all. If your corporation is not bound by it. And we're like, this was not me. This is somebody else. And they're like, hold on. We're bound by it. Like individually as a licensed agent, but the corporation is. And they said, well, if you want to really show us that the corporation is following the, the anti-money laundering rules and everything, then this should be a policy in your corporation. And so that was kind of one of those things that you kind of go, well, I, I don't know if I agree or disagree, but it doesn't take much to add a policy to your corporate you know, bylaws and stuff like that. Or I don't know if that's the right wording, but yeah. We got the gist of it. Yeah, there you go. 
So, Chris, did you have a sense here for? I'm sorry, do you have a point to make here? No, no, no please, Jason, after you. Give a sense of the consequences of non-compliance. Like, are they just withholding renewal of your license? Is that even something they can do? Is there, you know, a financial penalty on the table here, or and maybe not just non-compliance, but if you provided something inadequate, did they? Did this ever come up? Like, was there ever a threat, or did, did they talk about the, you know, what's the stick if things go wrong here? They did mention that uh, it, it, it's not a financial, but it is a, a withholding of your renewal. Uh, so they would actually revoke, revoke my license if I didn't comply. Uh, and I was given very strict time gui guidelines. It had to be done by end of day on a certain day, usually with a two or three day window provided um, to get these things done. Um, but it it was all my license. The My license in good standing was what was it at risk for me? So I was absolutely on side with trying to get it done. Um, again, sometimes the emails came at the end of the day. So, you know, you're scurrying to get things done just before maybe you want a vacation or something of the sort. And the timing wasn't always ideal, but I had to stay on top of it. Did you ever have the inclination here to bring in like a lawyer who deals in these matters? I didn't because I knew that what I had, what, what they were asking for was information that I had. So it was just a matter of piecing it together and providing it to them. It was just more from a time commitment rather than a legal perspective. Um, just happens at the you know least opportune of times, that's all. But it was just a matter of piecing it together. Yeah, okay. it's a good thing things like that don't happen when I'm in the middle of sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. Like, how do you respond when you're out of touch for three weeks? But um, yeah, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Just the most time-consuming part was, you know, when they asked for proof of correspondence with clients. So I mentioned they they came back and asked for two batches of proof where you gave recommendations to clients or clients gave you uh, recommendations and how you then shared it with the with the insurance carrier. So the most time-consuming part was going through all the different emails that have attached to the CRM, finding them doing screenshots or saving them to PDFs and compiling all that data to send off to FISRA. Uh, because the C the other stuff, like the CEs and what have you, is it's readily accessible in my my OneDrive. So yeah. hey, just a, a weird question just struck my head. Did you get or did you have to get approval from your clients to share maybe private information? Like it's not really it's not okay it's not medical private information it's your notes so they're your notes so there isn't a reason I'm, I'm not trying to trap you or anything there's not a reason why you'd need to get their approval but I can also see somebody getting upset about that maybe like as far as you know if if it came back around and all of a sudden they got a the client got a call from the regulator asking a pile of questions you might go holy cow how did how did I just get on the radar you know, I was and is this legit. I was very, um, I'm very thankful that I've got a lot of clients. You know, I, I, I've, I was, I have probably five or six that have asked me to sign NDAs, and they're you know, larger U.S.-based tech companies. And I made sure that the data that I was providing, the correspondence, correspondence with clients, did not involve those clients that had signed NDAs with. So, you know, for example, and, and I'm not don't mean to name drop Snapchat's a client. So, you know, I have, I've had an NDA in place with them for years. So I made sure that the screenshots, the PDFs of, of emails of direction or recommendations to the clients were not from, from them at all. It's, um, it's an interesting one because on the individual side, like my financial planning students, when they do a letter of engagement, one of the standard clauses in there is I would not disclose your information unless required to do so by a uh, legal order or compulsion from a regulator like that's a very common clause 
on the individual side, but you know, this goes back to differences between group and individual where typically you're not using, although I know some group people who do a, a, a full on letter of engagement. I know it's not sort of standard practice. I'm seeing it more and more often. It's interesting, even with smaller clients, you know, traditionally in the past, I would, it would be us based companies, hundred employees or more. Now I'm seeing, I just had one, uh, a client in Toronto with eight employees asked me to sign an NDA and not share any data. And that was a company that had, uh, the founder had been part of a larger startup that was acquired by a U.S. tech company. And so now his mentality is NDAs for anything and everything. Okay, that's fun. Uh, All right, Dave, do you want to wrap us up here? I think we have our concluding question, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess my one last question is, what one piece of advice would you give, in in our case, Ontario licensed advisors, after your experience with all this? Um, so if you had to say, okay, be aware, maybe not just Ontario, maybe anybody in Canada, um, but, but we're talking specifically about this audit, what would be the one piece of advice you'd say you'd give out to those advisors? Data, data, keep your, keep all your data from your, you know, from your, your CEs, keep your data, like your emails from your clients, your emails to clients. Um, keep everything, keep your licenses, keep, just keep as much data as you can be a pack rat, keep your, your, your licenses, your enos going back as many years as you can. Um, because that was all required for me, even though they had copies of my licenses, I was asked to provide them. So keep all the data. Good advice. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks. Jeez, uh, that's wonderful. Chris. That's a, I, I know that's a lot to share. And uh, I'm sure that it's not so like not so easy to to put the microscope over your own business like that. But thanks, that's uh, that's awesome. But for the record, he passed and is coming up yep. for renewal again. So let's see what happens this year. You know, after eight days from now, and it all starts getting approved. Yeah. For exactly. Chris's sake, I hope we don't have a part two to this podcast. So. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah, yeah me yeah. too. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Okay, like I said, lots there to unpack. No shortage of sort of opinion shared, which is good. I appreciate when um, when we're all able to be candid. The um, follow-up items here, first off, the number, the number for this episode is five. The number is five. Okay, um, I wanted to ask if anybody out there has gone through the same process that Chris went through, if anybody's been audited by their insurance regulator, I'd love to hear from you. I I don't necessarily need you to come on the podcast, although it'd be great if you would, but I'm just curious here about others and whether they've gone through this experience. And one follow-on item I had here, based on what you heard, is whether your um, certified financial planner um, certificate or QAFP certificate or insurance licensed, or if you just do group, or if you just do wealth or whatever, Think about what Chris talks about in here and think about whether or not your upfront disclosure with your client and especially what you do in writing is sufficient. So just as an example, you know, Chris mentions that he had to share some client info as part of this. And I know in the sort of standard um, templated disclosure letters that I see, the one I used to provide to my capstone students, for example, uh, there is a statement in there, something to the effect of, I will not share your information unless required by a regulator that matches FP Canada's standards of professional responsibility. So that's a good thing to include to say, hey, look, a regulator might come knocking at my door. This is a regulated business. And if that happens, I may have to disclose some information. Now, the NDA Chris talked about would um, 
presumably override that, although I don't know the language in an NDA. So that's um, fair. I also um, have a nice review here of Val, um, Val in Ontario. Um, her tag on here is Val in Ontario, comma CFP. Um, her review, great review. Thanks, Val. Uh, this is seriously my favorite way to get my CE credits in. I enjoy the conversations that Jason has with other professionals. Not only am I learning, but I'm able to be walking, driving, or doing other tasks while listening. It's a win-win. Uh, do yourself a favor, subscribe, and never look again at CE Credits with Dread. I actually look forward to this bi-weekly releasing of the podcast. Thanks so much, Val. That's great. Um, and on that note, uh, we're going to um, end it here. And I will be back in two weeks when uh, Jim will come on and we're going to talk about corporate tax planning. Uh, this is like some of our episode one, or sorry, season one, season two episodes. This is somebody who had a bunch of questions about a specific client scenario, emailed me and I said, let's get you on the podcast here and talk about this. So I was very happy with that. And yeah, please join me in two weeks again and enjoy your continued studies. If you're listening to this episode and you're not already signed up for CE credits, this is a very easy thing to do. Just navigate over to businesscareercollege.com and you're going to sign up here for CE. Just subscribe. Currently, the pricing is $200 a year. We may be uh, introducing monthly pricing at some point, but as of today, we have a cost of $200 a year. And once you're signed up, then you can just go and listen to every episode within your subscriptions. Once you're logged in, you'll use my subscriptions here and you'll just go to the latest episode, which you'll scroll down to very near the bottom for. It doesn't matter which episode, you just scroll down and you find the one. So as of the time I'm recording this, the most recent episode is season four, episode 27. I can just start it right from here. I can do the quiz here. Once I'm done the quiz, then I can get my continuing education certificate very straightforward. Um, so I would just launch the course here and I can watch the episode from here. Uh, now, if you happen to be already listening to it on YouTube or whatever the case is, you can just navigate right into the quiz, start your quiz, and you're just going to go through the whole thing. And then at the end of it, you'll be able to see your certifications. So we're going to bring up uh, designing small group products. We bring this up and we click on wall certificate and that's going to give me the CE certificate I need in order to maintain status wherever I happen to uh, need CE credits. So I really do encourage, I know that uh, out of our regular listeners, about 40% of you are listening to the episode for CE credits. That's about 60% who are listening out of general interest or whatever it is. Um, and I really think this is an easy way to get your CE credits, 200 bucks a year, pretty reasonable price. And as you can see from the certificate here, so, and as you hear me discuss at the beginning of the episode, we have a broad range of approvals for all of our courses. I'd like to thank uh, Joe Tong. Joseph is our editor, both for video and audio content. And Joe does a lot of good work to make sure that these episodes look and sound good, despite my better efforts. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Maria Nguyen. Maria makes sure that the episodes all get approved for CE credits. Uh, Veronica Tiber does the quality assurance through that process. And then we have a strong marketing team that makes sure that all of our content gets out there so that people can find us and uh, take advantage of the learning opportunity they might not have known about.